0: in a series of lectures on the logic of religion. This lecture will focus on Christian conceptions of belief. I am Jude Doherty, Dean of the School of Philosophy at the Catholic University of America. And while I'm talking about authors who are Christian theologians, my approach will be that of a philosopher, not of a theologian, Uh, himself. But before I get to the first of the Christian theologians whose conception of faith I wish to consider, those theologians being St. Thomas, Luther, and Calvin, and Kierkegaard, I want to consider two figures who stand between the early Christian period and the High Middle Ages and the Reformation and renaissance that is to follow and those two figures are boethius and even roosh or varroes and my treatment of them will be very brief and then i will begin to look at thomas on the nature of faith now boethius the dates are 480 to 524 a.d and you will remember that he was minister to King Theodoric, the Gothic king of Rome. For political reasons, he was sentenced to death and eventually executed. But while in jail, he wrote a book that is of perennial interest to students of every generation who read it, find it surprisingly relevant. boethius not only wrote the famous Constellations, he wrote on geometry, on music, on arithmetic, He translated four works of Aristotle, four logical works uh, known as the Organon of Aristotle. He also wrote a number of theological works, one on the Trinity. It was St. Thomas's commentary on the Trinity of Boethius, which gave us a philosophy of science that is characteristic of the work of that great medieval doctor. Boethius begins as a logician dividing philosophy into two kinds, speculative and practical, and he finds that speculative philosophy can be divided itself into as many sciences as there are classes of being to study. He distinguishes between three kinds of being, intellectual bilia, those beings that exist apart from matter, then intelligibilia, those that have fallen into matter, for example, the human soul, and here he's reminiscent of St. Augustine, and naturalia, purely material beings, and these are the object of study of physics or the sciences of nature. He is also responsible for the name quadrivium, which he gives to a group of sciences which cover the study of nature, and those sciences are arithmetic, astronomy, geometry, and music. Now, these are the roads to wisdom, and whoever is ignorant of them cannot claim to have wisdom. Three other disciplines make up the so-called trivium, the grammar, the rhetoric, and the logic. A major problem of his time was the problem of universals. Do universals exist in themselves or only in the mind? That was a problem that confronted Plato. It's one that confronted Augustine. And Boethius proposes two solutions. One he offers in his introduction to Aristotle's categories, genera and species are by definition common to groups of individuals. And what is common to several individuals cannot itself be an individual. Hence, universals do not exist in themselves, but only in the mind which has seen the common element." Now, these are philosophical or epistemological considerations, which in formulating them leads Boethius to make a number of distinctions relevant to a discussion of the Trinity. And I introduce this simply to point out that much that Thomas will be working on later has antecedents not only in the Gospels, in the Fathers, in Augustine in particular, but also in Boethius. I needn't develop Boethius philosophy or describe it at any great length, except to suggest that it does have an important role to play when Thomas himself picks up Boethius' Treatise on the De Trinitate, a Treatise made possible by the logic of Boethius making a lot of distinctions. The point being made, the overarching point, is that when it comes to interpreting doctrines, such as the Trinity, the language that is employed in trying to understand and explicate, that doctrine for others requires the appropriation of a language, a set of distinctions, in order to make these basic ideas clear. Between Boethius and Aquinas, we have the Arabic philosopher Averroes. And I just want to summarize his views on the nature of religion, the role of theology in religion, and the role of philosophy via the religion itself. Now, this is somewhat different than anything we've heard, though it's reminiscent of some of these skeptics of the Roman period. To date, of Varouez, his Arabic name, Ibn Rush, it's 1126 to 1198. Thomas you will remember, is born in 1224-1225. Averroes, looking at religion now, from the vantage point of the state, regards religion as a social necessity and indeed as in basic agreement with what he knows to be the case through philosophy. In order to appreciate the distinction between the respective roles of religion, theology, and philosophy, he considered it necessary to divide into three the classes of human beings as he found them. He finds that men are divided into three classes. The first class, composing the vast majority of people, live by their imagination rather than by reason. Now, in an earlier lecture, we were contrasting the way Christ presented his teaching with the way in which philosophers taught in the academy and in the Lyceum. And there is a certain amount of truth to what Averroes is proclaiming here, that the vast majority are not uh, professionals, either professional philosophers or professional theologians. And this class, must be induced, and here he has, above all, the moral purpose of religion, so to speak. Now, we haven't talked much to that. We've acknowledged that if one believes a certain set of doctrines regarding human nature, the end of life, there are moral considerations that flow from that. But we haven't encountered anyone, at least we haven't discussed anyone, who considers the whole function of religion to be to make men moral. Now, this class, that is the first class we're talking about, the great majority, must be induced to live virtuously by eloquent preaching, preaching which stirs the imagination rather than the intellect. The philosopher may be virtuous, but he's not virtuous for the same reason that the great majority are. He's virtuous for rational motives. The philosopher doesn't need religion in order to be virtuous. Religion is but truth made accessible to those whose imagination is stronger than their reason. So religion has that function, mainly, to make people moral. We see that in our own time. We have witnessed a decline in the social order, and people are identifying a lack of virtue in the populace as a whole, a lack of virtue which leads to disorder in the social sector. So Averroes certainly has a point here that the state or the secular community has a stake in the presence of religion in the people. Now the second class of people are the theologians. The theologians have the same beliefs as the vast majority of people. But they want reasons for what they believe. This is, as it were, the rationalization of the content of the faith. Reason is beginning to awaken in these men, and they are looking for a rational justification of their belief. But they are incapable of resolving these beliefs into scientific or what he calls absolute truth. The conclusions which they reach are at best probable. Now, the theologian is developing the content of faith. Averroes has a thousand years of Christian history, as it were, to reflect on. He is part of the Western scene, so he knows what theologians do, or what they have done, and they are attempting to justify what they have accepted on belief. And the third class, and you guess Averroes being a philosopher, what this class is, it's the philosophic class, the elite of mankind. I must note that professional philosophers do not regard themselves as the elite of mankind, at least in our own day. Philosophers, as Avaroes understands them, perceive the nucleus of truth contained in the fancies of the men of faith, and the truth contained in their dialectical probabilities especially those proposed by theologians. But the philosopher is able to rise above the common, and even above the theologian, and to know the truth in all of its purity. These three groups of people use different approaches to the same truth, and they ultimately agree with one another. The beliefs of the common people and the teachings of a theologian are simply philosophic truths made accessible to inferior minds. Averroes did not consider religion as merely a rough approximation of philosophic truth. It was for him much more. It had a definite social function to play a role that could not be played by anything else, not even by philosophy. If I may, in an aside, contrast that with the outlook of John Dewey, the dean, as it were, of American educational theory. Dewey thought that having found that religious witness is based on false assumptions that we should get rid of religion, remove it as an element within the school curriculum. And having accomplished that, then philosophy could provide the moral instruction, motivation to lead a good life, which religion formerly held. So, in a way, we have a, in Dewey, the architect of the American public school system, in a way, telling us, like Averroes, that religion has a definite social function that could be supplanted in the case of Dewey whereas Averroes did not think that even philosophy could supplant the role which religion plays in the lives of the great majority. The Koran he considers a miraculous book, a book divinely inspired. And the Koran for him is far more effective than philosophy in raising people to a level of morality. Moses, Jesus, Mohammed, or the true prophets and messengers of God to mankind. But their religions were only popular approaches to the truth found in its purity, that is, in philosophy. So here we have not Augustine's, I believe, in order to understand, But we have the affirmation of reason, as superior to the faith, that reason is ultimately to judge faith. Now, that's an aside, so to speak. And I turn now to the main topic, which is Aquinas on the subject of religion. For Aquinas, as it was for some of the Roman authors that we examine, particularly Cicero, religion is an act of piety. It's a species of justice whereby we acknowledge our dependence on God. We acknowledge that dependence and we will see in a moment through worship. Now, Aquinas begins his discussion of religion with an attempt to locate the origin of the Latin word, and he finds that it is subject to dispute. As a matter of fact, he identifies three views, the views of two authors whom we have considered and a third whom we have not considered. He finds that Augustine, trying to find the etymology of a term, found it in re-legere, E-L-I-G-E-R-E, meaning to re-elect. And Cicero is talking about religion in its meaning, re-legit, L-E-G-I-T, to gather back. And Lactantius identifies the origin, the etymology of the term, in re legare to bind back. And Thomas discusses all three of these views without deciding which author, in fact, had it right. As a matter of fact, if one were to consult a Latin dictionary today, one would find all these views discussed uh, under the term religion. At any rate, religion is a bond denoting man's relation to God. And that bond flows from several things. Because God is a being of infinite excellence and worth, man owes him reverence. So reverence is one act, one manifestation of religion. Because God as creator has given man all that he has, man owes him service. And because God is man's last end, man owes him love. We desire that which will complete us, and God presents Himself as the fulfillment, that is, life eternal in Him is the end of mankind. Now, Thomas says, the habit of paying these debts, these three debts, reverence, service, and love, is the virtue of religion. It amounts to rendering God what is due God, and man pays that debt through worship. It's through worship again that man pays reverence, service, and love. Divine worship, suggests Thomas, consists primarily in three acts. Adoration, which we can regard as the conscious, explicit, formal acknowledgement of God's infinite greatness and man's dependent upon him adoration. Prayer, another name for contemplation, is man's conscious communication with God. Through prayer, we enter into a dialogue with God. And then finally, sacrifice, which is the offering of some precious thing to God, And for a sacrifice to be complete, for it to be a sacrifice, one has to deprive oneself of something precious. So there is an offering which is taken in some fashion. The Old Testament, from a Christian point of view, is full of examples of offerings made by people as they approach God usually the destruction of some animal. The proper and immediate results of the acquisition of this virtue. And remember our understanding or definition of virtue. Virtue is simply a good habit. And we said before there can be habits of the intellect, there can be habits of the will, and of the habits of the will there is Four that were identified by Plato, and their identification leads to the affirmation of justice, prudence, temperance, and fortitude. Religion is a species of justice. It's a pious act, and piety toward God is just one form of piety, one good habit to have acquired, others being one should be pious toward one's country, one should be pious towards one's parents, one should be reasonably pious with respect to one's community, and show all of that by appropriate acts. The immediate and proper effect of the virtue of religion is sacrifice, adoration, prayer. But there are secondary acts of religion. Religion commands concerns for others. We have operative here the notion of the brotherhood of mankind under the fatherhood of God, that recognizing that others participate, as it were, in the divine, we have certain obligations to the others. Religion, secondary acts being attending to the fatherless, to the widows, etc. God's excellence is the basis of worship. That excellence has to be, in some fashion, apprehended. And that's where, as it were, rhetoric, preaching, teaching comes in. We have to be stirred by the glory of God in some fashion. Now, all those things through which reverence is shown belong to the concept of religion, belong to religion, not just a concept of religion. Thomas speaks of devotion as an act of religion, and devotion is nothing else but the giving of oneself readily to the service of God. We talk about husband being devoted to wife, wife being devoted to husband, and this entails acts of the will, a disposition to the other. This always follows some consideration since the object of the will. The will always follows an apprehension of a good. As a matter of fact, in the face of a good, it's the will's positive response is automatic. In a certain sense, there is no merit in loving because we can't help but love that which is good we can't help but love god who is the highest good but of course we have to know that and that's where the role of teaching that's where the role of a church really comes in on prayer prayer is fitting and thomas will say as we saw cicero and seneca saying That we pray not that we may change the divine disposition, but that we may better dispose ourselves by our prayers to receive what God has decided for us from all eternity. In other words, by asking, men may deserve to receive what Almighty God has eternally disposed them to receive. We're talking about St. Thomas Aquinas' views on religion. And we find that with Aquinas, religion is a moral virtue, a part of justice whereby we honor God. Thomas distinguishes between two kinds of religious acts, proper and immediate acts, such as sacrifice, adoration, prayer, contemplation. And then acts which religion commands And those were rather simple in his time. He gives, as examples, the care of orphans and widows, the unfortunate, those that meet with some chance misfortune. Uh, They need to be helped. Helping them is an expression of our love for God. By loving his creatures and by caring for them, we pay homage to Almighty God himself. It's God's excellence that is the basis of worship, but that excellence has to be recognized. We have to be, in some fashion, stirred to recognize God's glory. We have to meditate. We have to think about God before we can love God. And all those things through which reverence is shown belongs to religion. He talks about devotion, is nothing else than giving oneself to the service of God he talks about prayer and adoration with adoration we find thomas thinks it's fitting that both the intellectual and the sensible be appealed to both intellect and sense be appealed to in the process of adoration and de facto in most religions that we know anything about There are ceremonies, there are rituals that employ both an intellectual component and a sensory component. The Catholic Mass, whether one is a Roman Catholic or not, is often very attractive, even to the unbeliever, because of the symbols that are employed. Everything from candles and incense to icons to the hymns that are sung, to the words that are used in the celebration of a Mass. These appeal both to intellect and to the sense. There are some traditions that have repudiated that altogether, with no ceremony, no rite, no ritual, uh, no images or icons in their meeting houses and the like. But that is not a characteristic of Christianity. The offering of sacrifice, Within the Christian Dispensation, of course, it's the sacrifice of the Mass. But sacrifice in other fashion is, in fact, enjoined even today. We ask people to make sacrifices on behalf of this cause or that cause. You see, with Aquinas, many of the elements that we met in Greek and Roman authors are pulled together. There's much more to be said, but I needn't go further to meet my purpose. But one thing I would like to examine a bit in detail, and this requires some philosophizing on my part, if you will. It's really Thomas philosophizing. I am trying to convey something of his outlook or attitude, especially here, his notion of faith. We said before that the will plays a major role in the reception of the faith. The mind provides impulsion to the will. What the mind assents to is what is followed by the will. Let me try to put that a little bit better. Using Augustine's phrase, "To believe is to assent with cogitation." This indicates a distinction between faith, and all other intellectual operations. To believe is not merely to be hit with a set of propositions, as it were, there's something else involved. Now, to understand Thomas is to go back to Aristotle, upon whom he draws extensively. As a matter of fact, very often, the philosophy of Aquinas is identified as Aristotelian Thomistic. According to Aristotle, our mind has two main operations. First operation of the intellect is to receive a simple meaning, such as we signify by the term man or animal. Neither of these simple apprehensions nor their utterance involves truth or falsity. The second is an act of judgment, and a judgment is an affirmation or a denial, as the case may be. And here we express judgments in sentences. That's a begonia. I may understand begonia, but when pointing to a particular flower, it may or may not be a begonia, but if I point and say, that's a begonia, it either is or it isn't, It's in that judgment where I'm predicating something of something else, where I'm making an assertion, then I can have truth or falsity. Just knowing begonia, let's say what one is, or knowing something about a metal I've never experienced, but I've seen described in a physics textbook, or know that it's an important component of aircraft manufacturing, I wouldn't be able to with any surety, make a true judgment about whether this or that is that particular metal. Now, faith resides in a judgment, not in a simple apprehension. We believe, or don't believe, statements. We believe statements which we regard as true, we reject statements that we regard as false. We don't believe everything that's proposed, not even everything that's proposed from the pulpit. The human mind can be compared, and this is a philosophical concept, to primary matter, or a slate on which nothing is written, to something indeterminate in itself, but potential to the reception of forms, that is, information, if you will. Left to itself, the mind is able to receive all kinds of intelligible objects and is no more set on a positive statement than on a negative statement about any topic. In a way, it's indifference. Now, what removes this indifference? The indifference disappears when it's moved by a factor other than itself to one or the other of the alternatives. And this movement can come out of itself, either from its own proper object, namely, the evidence of the truth, or from the will. The will can command the intellect. It has control over our faculties and can command assent even when the object does not seem to command adhesion or adherence. Faced by a yay or a nay, the receptive mind can be affected in various ways. Sometimes it's swayed to one side, sometimes to another, either because evidence is lacking for both, as in problems, the answer to which we have no clue, or because the conflicting evidence appears counterbalancing. And this we call a state of doubt. Doubt is the wavering between alternatives. You have to buy a new washing machine, a new dryer, and you walk into any major store, you're confronted with so many options. You doubt which one is better than the other. Sometimes the mind tends more to one side than the other without being entirely committed. You might rely on consumer reports, Sometimes the mind in decision may be partially resolved in favor of one. It's not finally decided. You have an opinion. And opinion is the acceptance of one side, yet with the fear that the opposite may be true. You've been in that situation, I'm sure, time and time again. Sometimes the mind is quite made up in favor of one side, and this may either come from the evidence presented by the object or from the influence of the will. The evidence on the side of the object may be immediate, as when the truth of a proposition infallibly and at once appears from its very terms to be true or mediate it when the terms of the proposition, that is what is presented for our adherence, having been appreciated are taken back to first principles. So much of what we know about scientific knowledge is based on the fact that while we haven't discovered it, it makes sense in the light of the principles of that particular science and we adhere to it. Yet it may happen that the mind cannot take a stand on the evidence before it, either as immediately seen, or as with principles upon which it draws, or as immediately demonstrated, as with conclusions, but comes to a decision under the influence of the will, which resolutely and decisively chooses to adopt one side, because this is the right or the advantageous course to take, The motive is sufficient to sway the will, even though it may not sway the mind or the intellect. And Thomas says, in effect, such is faith. One person can take the word of another for the sake of decency or common sense. And likewise, with religious faith, which is moved by revelation because of promises regarding eternal life, though the mind remains blind to the inner evidence of what is proposed, it can nevertheless assent. We can be unwilling about other acts, but believing can only be willing. Augustine notes that we may go into the church, approach an altar, take the sacrament without internal intention about what the body is doing, but we can make an act of faith only if we want to. Neither assent nor dissent is conveyed by the simple apprehension of meanings. No judgment is passed, no proposition either adopted or rejected. The understanding of principles conveys an assent, but without deliberation, conviction comes without pondering the pros and cons. Scientific knowledge is marked by deliberation and conviction. But the first causes the second, and the second would cancel the first. The scientific process brings principles to bear, and the conclusion is resolved because of them. Once the scientific conviction has been excogitated, that is, articulated, the discussion is over. Consequently, cogitation and assent are not evenly matched. But in the case of faith, now, Cogitation and assent are simultaneous. The assent is affected by the will, not by taking to thought. The mind does not arrive at an object through its own proper motion, namely by coming to see the truth, and so it remains restless, and picks at and turns over what is believed. Its assent is completely unwavering, however, But nevertheless, the mind itself is not satisfied, for it has been settled from outside, not from the object compelling assent. Hence, the believer is said to be, in a way, a captive. Being in captivity, every thought related under obedience to Christ. Consequently, thoughts may rise up in the believer which are contrary to what he believes, but this doesn't happen in the case of understanding principles or in the case of demonstrated conclusions. What we're saying here is that what is accepted on faith is not, in effect, reason to. It's assented for reasons other than are compelling in the rational order. The intellect is not forced to go that way But it does go that way. When we assent to truths promulgated in the name of Christ, truths not accessible to human reason, so that we believe is more than being compelled on the side of reason. So to assent, then, to the truths of faith, to the truths presented in the name of Christ, separates faith from simple apprehension doubt and opinion augustine's phrase thomas refers to it it's an assent with cogitation which is different than simple understanding it's different than a judgment rendered convincing as a result of evidence presented now the problem of relating faith and reason remains with thomas But in Thomas, it's resolved that nothing on the side of faith can contradict what indeed is known to be true from reason. If there seem to be conflicts, it's because we haven't got one or the other term straight. The so-called conflict can be resolved. Sometimes claims are made on the side of reason, which do in fact conflict, But if we get the reasoned side straight, we will find that there is no conflict. Now, this is Thomas following Augustine, analyzing the nature of faith. Much is dependent upon what we think is, in fact, provided by natural reason. For Thomas, the supernatural builds upon the natural. What is revealed just merely complements and adds to the store of knowledge. It may not come from the side of reason, but it's compatible with it. Now, what reason can provide is, of course, a subject that is sometimes contested. As a matter of fact, we find it contested in the period of the Reformation, especially with Martin Luther. The dates were 1483 to 1546. Luther thought that Greek philosophy, and we found this in the early church fathers, some of them, that philosophy, far from being a guide and leading one to believe, was an impediment. Whereas Aristotle thought that the intellect was a powerful instrument, and Aristotle actually reasoned too, a self-thinking intellect. The first efficient cause, and ultimate final cause. Luther didn't have Aristotle's confidence in human reason. This is the result of his doctrine of the fall. Luther took that doctrine very seriously. He thought that as a result of the fall, man's intellect was so darkened that it could not reason to the existence of God. Nevertheless, men are in some possession of some natural knowledge of God's existence. This he took to be more or less an inborn truth of the human mind. Although the natural mind can know that God exists, says Luther, it cannot determine with certainty who or what God is in his own nature. As a consequent of the fall, our intellectual power is darkened and rendered impotent in matters involving the divine perfections luther's concept of a philosophy of god or luther's philosophy of god or his concept of the limitations of human intellect has as its root Uh, he was not a metaphysician or what today we would call a theorist of knowledge an epistemologist its a religious motivation. He feared that if we put too much weight on the cognitive ability of the human mind, that it might take away from the foundation of faith, and thus deprive faith of its gratuitous and independent nature. So the emphasis here is on faith rather than on reason leading one into faith. If you say that Reason brings one to assent to God's existence and tells you a lot about God. Well, what happens then to faith? And Luther, whatever else he was, was certainly an analyst of the notion of faith, putting a great deal of emphasis on the merit of faith. Calvin follows him more or less. In the Institutes of Christian Religion, and Calvin now is 16th century, 1509 to 1564, in the Institutes of Christian Religion, he comes to the conclusion, like many before him, that true knowledge or true wisdom consists in a knowledge of God and of ourselves. But how do we acquire this knowledge of God? Fallen man can apprehend God only with the aid of sacred scripture. God the Creator can be approached in two ways. God can be approached through natural reason, and He can be approached through sacred Scripture. God the Redeemer is, of course, known only through sacred Scripture. Though God the Creator can be approached in two ways, He is known only by supernatural faith. Natural reason is not superfluous, but it is intrinsically dependent upon the guidance of the Bible. The divine essence, from the standpoint of reason, is forever hidden and inaccessible to us. No proportion can be established between the human mind and divine nature. And yet... Like Luther, Calvin maintains that the human mind, due to a natural impulse, spontaneously affirms the existence of God as the one maker of the world. It affirms that God is distinct from the works that He has brought into being, and that God demands our service to Him in the form of worship. Calvin raises the decisive question whether our human mind can discern the general marks of God's character from its experience of the world. He insists that no answer can be given without adverting to the fall of man, which the pagan philosophers did not know and which the Catholic schoolmen like Aquinas and Bonaventure did not correctly interpret. With the fall, man's intelligence was not annihilated, but it was corrupted where its feeble sparks of instinctive knowledge of God were all but extinguished. In his depraved condition, man is unable to discern in, quote, the mirror of nature, the divine features. A philosophy of God, that is, natural knowledge of God, is not impossible either by reason of God's infinity or man's finitude, it's impossible by reason of historical man's sinfulness, namely the fall of Adam. Though a philosophy of God is impossible, this does not mean that fallen man ceases to search after evidence of God in the world or that man is fully aware of his predicament. Holy Scripture supplies us with the indispensable spectacles for looking into the mirror of the world and also for seeing aspects of the divine nature about which the world remains silent. The true and right knowledge of God involves a formal submission to revelation and to the Christian mode of worshiping God. Anything falling short of this norm must be confused, considered to be transient and error-ridden. It's not a full glimpse, and it certainly cannot constitute a philosophical science. That philosophical reasoning about God must result in contradictory and idolatrous views Calvin maintains, not because he studied the history of the philosophy of God, but because of his theological doctrines about the Fall and about Biblical faith. In repudiating philosophical reason, Calvin, if we were to criticize him, we would have to say, makes no allowance for self-criticism itself for a methodological improvement, and for the gradual accumulation of truths about God which can be attained over a period of time. Natural reason is corrupted, and therefore unreliable reason. And with that, we conclude having failed to say something about Kierkegaard. In a subsequent lecture, we will come back to Kierkegaard. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.